Remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also our sermon text from the end of John chapter 8. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, and I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Father, help us to hear, believe, and obey your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. None of you here will have to taste death. If you belong to Jesus, you will never see death. That's a promise from Jesus. The story is told of the funeral of James Morgan. James Morgan was a theology professor at a prominent seminary back in the 1960s. You've almost certainly never heard of him because he died of stomach cancer at the beginning of his teaching career in his mid-30s. James Morgan left behind a wife and four children still in the home. At one point during Morgan's funeral, another seminary professor, a prominent theologian by the name of Lewis Smeads, who is also dead now, came up front to address the grieving family and friends and colleagues and students of James Morgan, the deceased. According to an eyewitness account, Professor Smeeds stood up 
with his flowing white hair and his booming voice, and he said, James Morgan is not dead. Now, James Morgan's body was lying there in the casket. His wife and kids were sitting on the front row grieving the death of their husband and father. And up front, the truth was being proclaimed. James Morgan is not dead. If you can hear my words right now, then God in His perfect providence wants you to hear the good news that you don't have to die. You don't have to see death, as Jesus puts it. These these aren't my words. These are the words of God. The words of I Am. Jesus Christ, the great I Am, says that if you keep His Word, you will never see death. The implications of this are massive and total. It doesn't get any bigger than this for every one of us. If you can know that you are never going to die ever, then everything changes about the way you live. Knowing that you will never see death will set you free to give you the kind of freedom that Jesus talks about earlier in John 8. The truth that sets you free. It will free you from the bondage to worries and the riches and pleasures of this life. It will free you from your fear of death that Hebrews 2 says drives every one of us. It will free you from the fear of not having enough in this life. It will free you from the fear of suffering in this life. Knowing and believing that you won't see death is the truth that can set you free. Most importantly, it free you from your bondage to sin and death. It can give you a freedom that you may not be experiencing. Today's sermon brings us to the end of a section, to the end of John 8. Throughout John 8, Jesus has been confrontational and condemning. He just kind of keeps getting more and more provocative. He's been calling out the unbelief and hard hearts of the Jews who are interacting with him. Some of them say they believe in Jesus, but he's exposing their unbelief. And he's interacting with Jewish leaders, we can see. The final verse from last week's text sums up pretty well the message of Jesus to his opponents. Look at verse 47. Jesus says, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear, because you are not of God. So that's, that's pretty provocative, telling these Jews, these descendants of Abraham, these Jewish leaders even, that they are not of God. And that brings us to our passage today. Verse 48, then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan, and have a demon? The Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds and heretics. So there's two H's, half-breeds and heretics. The Samaritans were half-Jewish, but only half-Jewish, 
and their Bible was altered. They formed their own Bible and decided to worship God on their own mountain and in their own temple rather than in Jerusalem. So the Jews hated the Samaritans. But there's another layer to what Jesus is saying here. Remember, in the minds of these Jews who hate Jesus, it's still an open question who Jesus' father is. Everyone knew that Mary conceived Jesus out of wedlock. Remember, up in verse 41, they insinuate that Jesus was born of fornication, as a result of fornication. Now they are suggesting that his biological father is perhaps a Samaritan. We don't know who your father is, Jesus. For all we know, you're a Samaritan. So it's a racial slur. And then to cap it all off, they add, and you've got a demon. This is one of their go-to comebacks. The vitriol of these Jews shouldn't surprise us, even after we consider that they had recently professed faith in Jesus. Because we've seen what their faith looks like. It's not of the genuine kind. It's not the real deal. Jesus is deconstructing their self-image. And the human heart can become quite hateful when it perceives its self-image being threatened. There's almost nothing we cling to with greater vehemence, nothing that we cling to with greater tenacity than the props that we set up to bolster our self-image. We desperately want to believe and and we want others to believe that we are a certain kind of person. Perhaps that we are pious and faithful and courageous and correct. These hypocrites talking to Jesus wanted everyone to keep believing that they were the true sons of Abraham. The true sons of God. Jesus is deconstructing their false image. He's exposing their self-deception. And in response, they're pulling out all the stops. They're throwing the kitchen sink at Him. Hypocrites, self-deceived, self-righteous hypocrites will do whatever it takes to keep the props of their self-image propped up. Even if it means telling someone that He is of the demonic realm. Their treatment of Jesus is a reminder of what is involved when we identify with Jesus and His truth in the midst of a fallen world of falsehood and lies. Jesus was quite clear about the implications of being one of His faithful fathers. He says in a different place, in a different Gospel, A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, the devil, how much more the members of his household? J.C. Ryle said that once a Christian takes up his cross and begins to follow Christ, there is no lie too monstrous and no story too absurd for some to tell, tell against him. And the kicker, Ryle said, is that some will even believe the preposterous falsehoods that are said against the cross-bearing 
Christian. That's just how it works. It's what we should expect. And sometimes the ones making up the stories are the people of the world. Sometimes they are the people in the church. The Jews you see in John 8 are in the church, so to speak. The ones who are saying all these false things against Jesus were members of the covenant. They were members in good standing even. They are covenant members who believe that they love God, but who actually hate God. Ryle goes on to say, but let the Christian take comfort from the thought that he is only drinking the cup which his blessed Master drank before him. Remember what Jesus says at the end of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute, persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How does Jesus respond to the charge of being demon-possessed and to the charge that His Father is a Samaritan? Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon. There's His answer to the charge of demon possession. Jesus goes on, but I honor my Father. There's His answer to the insult that His Father is not a Samaritan, but is the Father in heaven. His ancestry is divine. His Father is God. And we can ask, how does Jesus honor His Father? Well, we've already seen it in the book of John and John 5 and earlier in John 8. He honors Him by doing the works that He has seen His Father do and by speaking the words that He has seen or heard His Father speak. Jesus honors the Father, but they dishonor Jesus. The last part of verse 49 says, and you dishonor Me. Their accusations of Samaritan ancestry and demon possession are designed to shame Jesus. That's always what it is designed to do. To lift them up and to put Him down. But that doesn't matter to Jesus, you'll notice. He knows who He is. He knows the truth. Jesus knows where He came from and He knows who His Father is. And that makes all the difference. If you know who your Father is the way Jesus knows who His Father is, then no one will be able to shame you with insults or lies. But there's another reason their dishonorable treatment of Jesus doesn't matter to Jesus. He's not seeking glory for Himself anyway. He says in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. This dishonorable treatment of Jesus is not shaming Him as they had hoped because Jesus isn't seeking His own honor and glory to begin with. Jesus never grasped for glory as Adam did in the garden. His glory came through the death on a shameful cross. That's how Jesus gains glory. And look at what Jesus says in the second half of verse 50. There is one who seeks and judges. 
In other words, one who seeks my glory and who judges me, we could add to be faithful, favorably. Jesus isn't seeking his own glory, but there is one who is seeking it. The Father is the one seeking the glory of Jesus and judging him favorably. You see that Jesus is out for the Father's glory and the Father is out for his Son's glory. Back in John 5.22, we saw that the Father doesn't judge human beings. At least from one perspective. He's given that task, we could call it, to Jesus, His Son. But here Jesus says that the Father judges. In other words, judges Him. The Father seeks Jesus' glory and judges Jesus favorably. No wonder Jesus is unfazed by the dishonorable treatment of His fellow covenant members. He knows who He is, and He knows what His Father thinks about Him. He knows who He is, and He knows what His Father thinks about Him. That's that's what all of His words have to do with. He knows who He is, and He knows what His Father thinks about Him. What else could anyone need besides this? Here's how verse 50 applies to you. If you're a child of God who doesn't seek your own glory, if you're a child of God who's willing to suffer with Christ, alongside Christ, rather than seeking your own glory and promotion, then God will seek your glory. He'll seek it for you. He'll take care of it for you. And He will judge you favorably in Christ because of Christ. What's true of Jesus in verse 50 is true of you too. Let me show you where I see this more explicitly in the Bible. Turn with me to Romans Chapter 8. Romans 8. Romans is two books after John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 14. And read all the way through verse 17. Romans 8. 14. And I'll read through 17. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Remember, fear is what drives us before God saves us. But you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. God's plan is to glorify you. He's seeking your glory just as He was seeking Christ's glory. Not in the exact same way, of course. He's the only begotten Son. He's the unique Son. But we are children. And your glorification is how your story in Christ ends. We could say it's how it culminates or climaxes. If you endure to the end, if you respond to suffering faithfully, if you seek God's glory above your own, you will be glorified by God. That's what Paul says here. So it doesn't matter when people in the world 
Or when your brethren in the covenant dishonor you, you can echo the words of Jesus in John 8.50. Here's what you can say. You can say, I don't seek my own glory anyway. But there is one, the Father who seeks my glory on the last day. He is my Father and He has already judged me favorably in Christ. That's who you are. That's what you've been given right now in Jesus, and that's what you have to look forward to. God will take care of you. Does anyone's judgment matter more than God's? Does anyone's condemnation matter more than your Father's declaration that you are righteous in His Son, Jesus Christ? Does anything that might happen to you in this life compare to the glory that awaits you in the next life? In verse 51, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never, ever see death. It's emphatic. Notice how Jesus, the word made flesh, emphasizes His Word that we must keep. And later he's going to say that he obeys the Word he does. He keeps the Word of his Father. So he's not telling us to do something here that he doesn't also do. To keep his Word is to hear it, to believe it, and to obey it. What does Jesus mean when he says that those who keep his Word will never taste death? We actually need to break this question into two parts. Break it down into two parts. First, what does Jesus mean by keep my word? Keeping his word is what we must do to never ever see death. We need to make sure we know what keep my word means. Second, what does Jesus mean by he shall never see death? So first, what does keep my word mean? In general, It means that if you believe what Jesus says, embrace what Jesus says, treasure what Jesus says, honor what Jesus says, hold on to what He says as your greatest possession, and do what Jesus says, then you won't ever see death. You're not going to taste death. But we can get more specific than that. The Word of Christ is the Gospel of Christ. The good news of Christ. His word is not just a bunch of do's or keeps or do nots. Right at the heart of his word is the cross. If we don't see that, then this will become just a legalistic command from Jesus and how to earn his favor. So when he says, keep my word and you'll live forever, he's not reducing His Word or the Gospel to mere commandments. He's not saying that the cross is unnecessary. He's not giving us a command whose scope leaves out the cross. Of course not. The cross is where the story is going. The cross is what all the words of Christ are pointing to. The cross is what the Word of Christ is all about. From beginning to end, from top to bottom, and everything in the middle. 
Keeping his word means nothing other than living at the foot of the cross. Keeping the word of Christ means nothing other than living, conducting your life at the foot of the cross. Here's what keep my word means. Keep his word means keeping your eyes on him and his cross as you learn to take up your cross. Keeping your eyes on Jesus and his cross first as you learn to take up your cross second. Jesus isn't leaving the cross out of it when he says, keep my words and live forever. No, with these words, he's putting the cross right in the middle of it because he's putting the gospel right in the middle of it because he's putting his word right in the middle of it. So what does Jesus say when he says, you shall never see death? What did Professor Smeeds mean when he said, James Morgan is not dead? Jesus gives the answer in chapter 11. Flip over there, since it's just a few chapters away from John 8. Flip over to John 11 and find verse 25. Jesus is standing in front of Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. But he says to Martha in verses 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Verse 26, And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In essence, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, he shall never die. So we might want to ask, well, which is it? How does this work? Is this a contradiction? Well, we need to look at other places in Scripture. Turn back to John 5, verse 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in me who sent me has everlasting life. Has, present tense, everlasting life. And shall not come into judgment, but has passed, past tense, has passed from death into life. Followers of Jesus have passed already Right now, from death, from everlasting death to everlasting life. The passing from death to life is over and done. It's happened if you're in Christ. We already have eternal life now. And by definition, eternal life cannot stop, right? It's eternal. Eternal life can't even be interrupted by death, by the death of our bodies, When your heart stops beating, your eternal life doesn't miss a beat. The air in your lungs and the blood in your veins is not the main life. That's one of the main points here. The the air in your lungs and the blood in your veins, the activity of your body, what we call life, 
and what we distinguish from death is not the main life, not the most important life. That life can stop. It will stop. It does stop every day. But you can have a life, if you belong to Jesus, you do have a life that is woven into your inner you in such a way that you'll never, ever see death. It's a different kind of life. It's eternal life. And it belongs to those who are born again of God, of His Spirit. If you have this life, then you, the essential you, will never die. Now, we want to be careful here that we're not making too much of a dichotomy, a separation in our minds between body and soul. The death of your body is not ideal. And the separation of your soul from your body is not forever. So the death of your body is not ideal. It's not the goal. Physical death is an enemy that will be conquered. The last enemy to be conquered. But physical death is not the end of your main life. Your most important life principle in you. Paul says in Philippians 1, For me to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Better, in one sense. I am hard-pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Okay? He, Paul was very honest and realistic about the glories of what comes to us as believers when we die. And he realized that it's better than this life. Can't make any bones about that. We look forward to death in one sense as believers. He also says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's again something that he looks forward to. Now we have to qualify the way we talk about this, the way we think about this so that we're not glorifying death in a way that the Bible doesn't glorify death. But Paul could think this way and speak this way, and we shouldn't make objections to it because he realized what Jesus said in John 8 is true. You really never see death if you're in Christ. If you're a disciple of Jesus, there won't be even one millisecond of broken fellowship with Jesus when you die. There are no blips or breaks in eternal life. It never stops and it never ends. Because you belong to Jesus, you won't see or taste the end of your eternal life because there is no end to it. You can't see or taste what is not. So back in John 8 now, the Jews respond in verses 52 and 53. Then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. We know. That's the, that's the one thing they know here. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who do you make yourself out to be? This question at the end of 
verse 53 comes from a hard heart, from hard hearts, but it leads to the greatest revelation in the Bible. These obstinate Jews hadn't asked this question, we wouldn't be getting the theological riches that are in the rest of this chapter. But before Jesus answers their question, before we get to those riches, the best of them, he reaffirms his claim to know the Father, and and these are riches too. The Father is the key to who Jesus is. Verse 54, Jesus answered, I honor my Father, my my honor I'm sorry, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me, of whom you say that He is your God. Yet you have not known Him, but I know Him. And if I say I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know Him and keep His word. Notice the priority on knowing God in verse 55 there. Jesus uses the verb know four times in that one verse. John's gospel keeps asking us whether we know God. Do you know God? Do you have a relationship with God? That's one of the main threads through the book of John. You can be religious without knowing God. You can be a Bible teacher without knowing God. These Jews were members of God's covenant, but they did not know God. They knew that Jesus had a demon up in verse 52, but they failed to know God. There will be many people on the last day who were religious, who were church members, covenant members, but who never actually knew God. They had no connection to Jesus, God's Son. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Knowing God is vital. Knowing God is what it means to be a Christian. In verse 56, Jesus gets around to answering their earlier question. Remember, they'd asked them up in verse 53, who do you make yourself out to be? Who, who do you think you are, Jesus, talking like this? And look at Jesus' answer in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? What, what did Abraham see exactly? Did God give Abraham a vision? Is Jesus referring to a particular event in Abraham's life back in the book of Genesis that we're supposed to find? When did Abraham see Jesus' day and rejoice? Well, there are two keys to unlocking this verse. The first key has to do with what these Jews believe believed about Abraham. They believed that Abraham knew about the coming Messiah. And of course, he did. He looked to it by faith. Abraham looked ahead to the Messianic age, which was associated with the day of the Lord and the later Scriptures. 
By faith, Abraham looked ahead and saw the messianic age. He knew that his son Isaac was the son of a promise that would have a culmination in a Messiah, in an age to come. He didn't know when. Maybe he thought it was very close. But he looked to it. The day when the Messiah would come. When Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled. This is, the, this, this is the day that Jesus is talking about in verse 56. This day that everyone was expecting, rightly. And Abraham also was expecting it, even in his time. So that's the first key. There's a second key we have to have to open this, this door to this verse. The second key has to do with the way verse 56 is worded. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, Abraham, uh, your father Abraham rejoiced to see the messianic age, the day of the Lord, something like that. That wouldn't have offended anyone. That, that, he, yes, of course. Everyone agrees with that. Instead, look how Jesus says it. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. The day of the Lord that Abraham rejoiced to see is my day, this day. I'm the fulfillment of Abraham's messianic hopes and joys. I'm the fulfillment of Abraham's faith. This claim destroys all of the points that the Jews had been arguing. And they don't have a good response. So they just decide, as many unbelievers do, to misinterpret Jesus' words. They interpret them crassly in verse 57 as if Jesus had claimed to be Abraham's contemporary. Then the Jews said to him, You are not 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Of course, this misses the point. Jesus wasn't saying that he was born of a woman while Mary was, or while Abraham was still alive. But Jesus uses this misinterpretation as an opportunity to make perhaps the most important claim in all the Bible. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Let's think about what Jesus means here in verse 58. People who deny, let's let's think about what he doesn't mean, mean first. People who deny that Jesus is God or deny that Jesus ever claimed to be God suggest that Jesus is just saying here, that he existed before Abraham. You know, and that, that, there's nothing blasphemous about that. The angels, of course, existed beforehand. Michael, the angel, whom some say Jesus is. Maybe he, he existed beforehand. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying here. That he existed before Abraham. But that can't be what it means here. The the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Unitarians who interpret it that way, they can't be right. 
Because Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. That's what he would have said. That would have been the most natural way to say that. Before Abraham existed, I existed. I pre-existed Abraham and that's why you should listen to me. But that doesn't work because he doesn't say I was or I existed. Instead, he says something extremely awkward grammatically. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. Which is just grammatically odd. There's no way around it. It's a strange sentence structure. And it's just as awkward in the original as it is in English. It comes through just fine. It's a weird way of speaking. But Jesus has a good reason for saying it this way. He's identifying himself as Yahweh who calls himself I Am in Exodus 3. In Exodus 3.14, God says to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, I Am has sent me to you. So when Jesus says in verse 58 of John 8, before Abraham was I Am, he's claiming to be I Am. It's the only reason he would go out of his way to use such weird grammar. And verse 59 confirms that this is the only possible way to interpret verse 58. The Jews would not have picked up stones to throw at Jesus if he was just claiming to pre-exist Abraham. So if you're ever in a conversation with someone who denies the deity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, denies that Jesus is God, and, and you just can't think of any of the arguments that you've heard or the scriptures, just put this one in your mind. Stick it there, and it's a go-to. There's no way, there's several in the New Testament that there's just no way around. We've seen some of them already in the book of John. But here's a fun one to go to. These Jews knew exactly what verse 58 means. Jesus is claiming to be God in the flesh. And this is blasphemous unless it's true. And he deserves to be stoned unless it's true. Of course, it is true. But they weren't able to stone him. They weren't able to kill him just yet because it wasn't his time to die. That's what the second half of verse 59 says. That second half of verse 59 is a mystery to everyone. We'll find out how that happened when we get to heaven. The purpose, though, is to tell us that it wasn't time for him to die. The good news in this passage is that God has provided a way for you to live forever, to never, ever die. And when I say God has provided a way, I mean Jesus, the God-man, has provided a way for you to live forever and never, ever die. To never, ever see or taste death. He says, if you keep my word, you will never die. You will never see death. And remember, keeping the word of Jesus means keeping your eyes on Him and His cross as your only hope for salvation and 
learning to take up your own cross. That's a summary of the Gospel. Keeping your eyes on Jesus and His cross and learning to take up your own cross as a follower of Jesus. Do this and you'll live forever with Jesus. Do this and you'll be free from your bondage to sin. Do this and you'll be free from your bondage to fear. Do this and be free from your bondage to earthly things. Do this and be free from your bondage to this life. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Father, we know what you've called us to do. You have been clear in your word about who Jesus is and what the gospel is, the good news of our salvation in him. Help us to keep his word, even as he kept your word. Give us grace to live before the cross, to look to Jesus and the cross for our salvation, and to follow Jesus in taking up our cross. We ask for help in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.